0: You are now listening to Pursuit Cast, the official podcast of Pursuit NYC. May it be an encouragement to you today and stir your soul for revival. Um, If you guys can turn to John chapter 13, that's where our passage will be. You know, as Pastor Sam says, at Pursuit, you know, we're contending and we're really believing in revival. That when local churches and individuals come together, that there's a powerful move of God in this region, amen? And that revival looks like a spiritual resurrection, individually, corporately, where passion gets reignited. That revival looks like just a reawakening in people's hearts to go after God again. That if you've been living in a place of compromise or complacency, that it's a reawakening to go after God. That revival looks like transformation to those who are hungry and those who are hurting. So if you're in any one of those places and you're here tonight, then you're at the right place because we believe that Jesus is going to meet you where you're at tonight, amen? Amen. How many of you guys watched Black Panther recently? Wakanda forever, right? Wakanda forever. Um, I love one of my favorite quotes from that movie is when T'Challa says at the end, he says this, he says, In times of crisis, the wise build bridges while the foolish build barriers. We must find a way to look after one another as if we were one single tribe. And I love that quote because I think that says a lot about the society and the time that we are living in right now. But I love that because I think that's what revival looks like. In times of revivals, churches build bridges and we come together as one single tribe. And that's why we love doing these monthly gatherings, that we got individual people, we got people from Albany, we got people from Queens, we got people from Delaware at one time, all come together to unite under one name, and his name is Jesus, amen? But as in like any other family, there's always conflicts, clashes, differences, right? That you guys are of the same blood, but sometimes you can be the furthest from that person. But I think that's what makes families so powerful, that you have all these different people come together in unity, and I think that's what revival looks like. Revival looks like us coming together as one family, as one tribe, where individual churches and people come together with the differences, yet we're all uniting under one name. But I think this is also one of our greatest vulnerabilities to the enemy, because the enemy does his best to keep us separate, to keep us from coming together, to keep highlighting our differences. Because while it's easy to value relationships and people who are like you, how do you value people who are different than you? How do you value people who don't have the same theology as you, the same mindset as you, the same worship style and preferences as you? What do you do with people who don't believe like you do or live a lifestyle like you do? In Mark chapter 3, Jesus invites 12 men, Peter, James and John, the son of Zebedee, Andrew, Philip, um, Jude, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, and Judas to be part of his inner circle where for the next three years that they would do life together. That these were the men that Jesus was most vulnerable with. That these were the men that Jesus poured his life into and that they would come to know Jesus and each other on a totally different level. But the thing that stands out to me about Jesus and his relationship with 12 disciples is like, how did he choose these 12 random men? Like, these are complete nobodies, and if anything, they were completely different from each other. Like, you ever think about that? That you got Peter, who's brash, he's emotional, he's a fisherman. Like, he's like that friend in your group that's always going to throw down and defend anyone that talks smack about anyone in your friend group, right? Then you got John. Scholars say John was so ambitious, And that he had this idea that Jesus loved him personally the most. Right? Some of you guys have friends like that, right? They think that they're better looking than they actually are. Or you, you know, that's, maybe that's you. But you kind of get an idea of how that might rub people off the wrong way. Especially the other disciples. Then you got Matthew, who was a tax collector. And this guy was betraying his own country, working for the Roman Empire so that he can get personal gain. Then you got Thomas, who was a man of doubt and pessimism, and he was all—he was probably all, like questioning Jesus all the time. Like, Jesus, did that really happen? Like, did you really feed the five thousand right now? He was a man of constant doubt and pessimism. So you can only imagine the differences, the clashes, the conflicts that would rise up when twelve different people come together to be part of Jesus in a circle. And if I were Jesus, I'd have chosen the brightest and the best. I would have valued chosen people who are similar to me because that would just make my life so much easier. But Jesus showed that the way you value all different types of people and relationships, the way you build revival, the way you build a tribe is through honor. Turn to the person next to you and say honor. Honor. So we're going to read from John chapter 13, verse 1. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. We're going to skip down to verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am so. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I've done to you. Amen. Let's just pray before we continue on. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that your presence is here. God, I'm just so excited for everything that you're going to do tonight. That there's going to be healing. That there's going to be deliverance. That there's going to be a release of peace and joy. That there's going to be awakening in people's lives here tonight. So God, as we just learn about how you honor the disciples, Lord, we believe right now that you are in the midst of building a tribe in this region of New York and New Jersey. So we thank you, we love you, and Jesus Christ, we pray. In the beginning of our passage in John chapter 13, the Passover feast is upon them, so Jesus gathers his 12 disciples in an upper room in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover meal together. Now, after, after this meal... Jesus offers them a bread and a cup. And we know this to be the last supper. We know this to be communion. But for the disciples, it meant something different, right? For us, we know that the bread signifies that his body will be broken. For the cup, we know that that signifies his blood being poured out. But in that day, the bread and the cup meant something very different. For the bread, in Jesus' time, Rome ruled the world. And at this time, Caesar Augustus was in charge. And he was a powerful, oppressive, and evil emperor. And, and But to make people like him, he would go into these cities and, and host these massive gatherings called bread and circus. And he would break bread and give it to the common people. And by doing so, he was saying this. He said, I am your king. I provide for you. I sustain your life. I am your savior. But here is Jesus offering bread. And the disciples know that by taking his bread, that the disciples would be declaring "I, that, that Jesus, you're the king that you're the bread of life, that Caesar no longer provides, but you do. So this was a revolutionary act. And for the, for the cup, in those days, if a young Jewish man had a heart for a young Jewish girl and was like, damn, I need to marry this girl so we can fruit, be fruitful and multiply, what he would do is that he would tell his dad, and his dad would throw this huge engagement party, this huge party of, of the whole community. And so the young man would invite his friend, the young woman would invite her friend, the parents on both sides would invite their friends, and it would be this huge community party. And at some point in the party, the young Jewish man has to take a cup of wine, walk across the room, and offer it to the young Jewish girl. So You can imagine how nervous the Je- young Jewish man is. And his friend's encouraging, like, you got this, bro, you got this. So he takes the cup of wine and he walks and he offers it to the young Jewish girl. Now, if the young Jewish girl didn't want to marry the man, then she would take the cup and shatter it on the floor in front of everyone. Ooh. But if the young Jewish woman wanted to marry the man, she would take the cup and drink of it, saying, I choose you. Then the young man would make a speech in front of everyone and to that girl and saying, in my father's house, there are many rooms, and I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And that's what literally Jewish men did, because from that moment on, it was a year engagement period where the young Jewish man would return back to his home and build a home, build a room on top of his father's house for him and his wife to be. And the young Jewish girl, she would return to her home, light a lamp and place it near her window, which would symbolize her purity and her commitment. It was a sign that she would keep her flame burning for him until he returns to fulfill the promise that he's come for her to take her as his own. It's beautiful, right? All the girls are going like, mm, all the guys I see you girls. So when Jesus offered the bread and the cup, they knew exactly what Jesus was doing. That by taking his bread, they were declaring allegiance to Jesus' kingdom and not the kingdoms of this world. And that by taking his cup, they were declaring that they would keep themselves wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus until he comes back to take them as his own. Amen. So while the bread and wine was something familiar to the disciples, something unordinary was about to take place. You see, in verse 4 of today's passage, it says that Jesus suddenly rose up. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You see, foot washing generally took place before a meal in order to wash your feet, before dinner, because you see, because back in those days, you ate on low reclined tables. So you would recline. You would, you would actually lay down on your side like this with your left hand on the table and lean with your right hand eating. And so foot washing took, general, took place before a meal. So for Jesus to rise up after the meal, that was unordinary. But not only that, it was the servants and slaves of the host to wash the feet as a sign of hospitality, as a sign of respect on behalf of the host, never the host himself. Matter of fact, the act of washing the feet was so beneath them that Jewish slaves actually left the responsibility to the Gentile slaves to wash the guests' feet. So for Jesus, their teacher, their Lord, their host, to wash the feet and take the position of a slave was so unordinary. But what do we read? When Jesus had washed your feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? Do you understand what I have done to you? In these last few hours that I have remaining with you, I could have taught you something. I could have performed a miracle. But here I am washing your feet, showing you this principle called honor. Out of everything Jesus could have done in his last remaining hours, he actually washes the disciples' feet. In Greek, the word for honor is timia. And as a noun, it means valuable. It means precious. It means weighty. And as a verb, it means to value, to esteem, to favorably regard. And therefore, societies, you know, we honor the elderly by bowing down to them, or we stand up in the presence of like a president or a king, because we're saying that, hey, we recognize the worth, the value that's placed upon your life. But the way that the world honors and the way that the world, the way that Jesus honors is remarkably different. In the English dictionary, honor is defined as this, a recognition of merited respect, a definition of merited respect, meaning that honor is something earned. You see, in the world, you have to embody certain virtues and attributes, whether status or wealth, that the society values in order to be deserving of respect. Like, you have to fit a certain mold. And if we're completely honest, we operate in the same way, in our own personal way, when it comes to people. We measure them up, and we say, oh, man, you're not worthy of my time. You're not worthy of my respect. You're not worthy of my love. You're not worthy of the best and important qualities of myself. We function the same way that the world does. But when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he showed that honor is defined as a recognition of kingdom value and significance. Of kingdom value and significance. That you don't have to earn it. Just the sole fact that you belong to me and my kingdom makes you worthy. And let's be honest, there wasn't anything noteworthy that the disciples did for the past three years to earn Jesus' respect, love, and honor. Matter of fact, in just a few hours, one's going to betray him. Another is going to deny him, and all the others will flee from him. Yet by taking on the position of a slave and washing their feet, Jesus treated them with the utmost respect as his honored guest. That he saw them as his honored guest. How many of you guys know that in the Bible, whenever sight is mentioned, it's never just physical, but also spiritual? That's why in Matthew 9, it says that when Jesus saw the masses of people, He had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, meaning that when Jesus looks at people, he sees us for truly who we are, all the mess, the brokenness. But there's a flip side to that same coin. Yes, when Jesus looks at us, he sees us for our worst, our brokenness, our shame, our failures and our mistakes. But he also sees us for the best, our potential, our strengths, our dreams, our courage and our wholeness. That when Jesus looks at you, he sees a full snapshot of everything you are. And when he looks at our worst, he shows compassion. But when he looks at our best, he shows honor. Amen? Amen. Wow. So in the first century Jewish culture, it was every Jewish boy's dream to become a rabbi, a teacher of the law. Right? That was what everyone dreamed of hoping to become. And you would need to pass multiple tests. Like You would need to memorize the first five books, the Torah, like completely. And then you would need to pass other things and memorize other things, and eventually you would become a rabbi when a, when, a, no, when, a, when a rabbi would take you under his wing and choose you to be his disciples. But the fact that the disciples are fishing, they're doing other family businesses when they're first introduced in the gospel means that they had failed in the pursuit of becoming a teacher of the law. <coughs> but here comes Jesus, a teacher and a rabbi, and he specifically handpicks them to be his disciples. So you can imagine how ecstatic they were. And when Jesus chooses them, yes, he saw them for who they truly were. Mere fishermen, tax collectors, failures. But I also believe that he saw them for who they could be in the kingdom. World changers, history makers, theologians, apostles, early leaders of the church. Even in our passage in John chapter 13, right before the disciples' greatest failure of abandoning Jesus, Jesus chose to honor them, not as cowards who are going to run away in a few hours, but as courageous men who will take his name across the Greco-Roman world in the face of suffering and persecution. And that's what honor is. Honor is treating people not as they are in the moment with their physical eyes, but treating as them who they, uh, treating them as who they could be in the kingdom with their spiritual eyes. It's choosing to look beyond. Some of you guys know this, but um, I'm a driver for Lyft. Uh, I've been doing it for like the past three months. Uh, and it's been very interesting. Um, people ask me if it's worth the money. I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, yeah, because sometimes you make a lot of money, sometimes you don't. But um, yeah, you know, you run across into all these different types of people. And it's so interesting, like. I've run into single moms carrying their infants to visit their, um, their husbands in jail. I've met prostitutes picking them up motels. I've met vice presidents of these big time corporations. i met just a bunch of different people. And, and it's so interesting, because you, know, you get to know their stories and talk a little bit with them, and, and it's just been fun. Um, but there's four things that I've learned while doing this the past, past couple of months. Number one, you have to say, would you like a piece of gum? Because if you just say, would you like gum, the passenger will take the whole container. <laughs> Yes, that's happened to me before. Number two, that international students or employees will use their lived experience to always get a free English or cultural lesson. And the way it usually starts off is asking me, so is Jehoshua your real English name? And that's, and you guys, some of you guys don't know me, but my legal name is Jehoshua, it's spelled J-E-H-O-S-H-U-A. So when they look at that on the app, they're like, is Jehoshua an English name? And then I have to be like, yeah, but it's like, uh, yeah, my parents just spelled it differently, and then they start asking me about American culture and stuff like that. So they always try to get an English lesson out of their Lyft experience. Number three, you get a really good sense of who will tip you and who won't. So when I first started Lyft, you know, I wanted to get a good rating. So whenever a passenger would get into my car, I would offer them water. I would offer them gum. I would open, I would get out of my car and open the door for them. But after a couple of times, you realize that you're not always going to get the tip giving the best service. So I'll be honest with you, and this is, I know this is messed up, but out of my own personal judgment, I would offer these extra services only to people who I thought would give me a tip or who are deserving of my services. I know it's messed up, but you know, when I would drive up, if I see the person, I'm like, oh, this person looks like he'll give me a tip. I'll go all out for them. But if not, I'll be like, just get in the car. Come on. I got to I got (laughs) to grind here. I got to grind. Got to make some money. But I remember the Lord confronting me about this because I remember one time he asked me, Josh, what does honor look like while doing lift? And I'm like, God, I don't have time to think about what honor looks like while I'm doing lip. I'm trying to make money here, God. But I feel like God, you know, he gently rebuked me. He says, Josh, honor looks like treating every person who steps into your car as the most important and significant person in your life, regardless of whether they give a tip, regardless of whether they deserve your service or not. It's the fact that you represent me and I treat everyone with the utmost importance and honor. So would you do the same? So the fourth thing that I learned about doing lift is honor is a characteristic of God. And because I'm made in His image, it's also a characteristic of myself to find the gift, the wonder, the potential, and the best of other people before me. Amen? It's part of our spiritual DNA to honor other people. You know, Bill Johnson, a pastor, you know, you guys know Bethel Church in Reading. He says this, we don't honor others because they're honorable, but we honor others because we're honorable. Let me say that again, we don't honor others because they're honorable, we honor it because we're honorable. It's part of who we are, that we have the power to act, speak, talk, that doesn't depend who's before us or how they treat us, that we always have the power to treat the people before us with the utmost respect and integrity, amen? You know, one of my favorite stories on honor is King David in 1 Samuel 24, and at this point in the story, King David is exiled. He's banished from the kingdom because Saul, you know, he's mad and crazy at this point. He's trying to kill David. And there comes a point where Saul is chasing David. And he has to go use the bathroom. So he steps into a cave to take a leak. And lo and behold, David and his men are in the same cave as him. And so David's men are excited. They're like, this is the day. This is the day where our suffering will end. Because if you kill this mad king, then we will all be free men once again. And so David creeps up to Saul while he's using the bathroom. And instead of killing him, he does actually something very interesting. He, he, He gets his knife and he cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. Now, for some of us, we're like, what the heck? What's the importance of that? But the thing is that you have to understand that in ancient Semitic culture at this time, at the end of king's robes, there were these things called tassels. Right, And you have a bunch of tassels at the end, and they were dyed in purple. And purple was a very rare and expensive dye at the time. And so this tassel and this robe would signify a king's royalty, a king's worth, a king's value, a king's honor. So for David to go to King Saul and cut off the corn of the robe, David was aligning with the world system and saying, I'm not going to honor you because you're not worthy of my respect. I take away your king's royalty. I take away your honor from you you are not worthy of my respect but immediately after he does that scripture says that david's heart struck him because david immediately realized that what he had done what he had just done to Saul to dishonor him wasn't very act against the lord and so david says the lord forbid that i should do this thing to my king the lord's anointed to put my hand against him seeing he is the lord's anointed one so he runs out of the cave he bows his face to the ground and he calls after King Saul and he says, my Lord, my king. You notice he doesn't say, you murderer, you madman, you crazy person. But he res- shows the sign of respect to the very man who's been ruining and destroying his life with these years. He's able to still call after him and honor him and say, you're my Lord, you're my king. Because David knew that no matter how Saul treated him, that David... He had the choice, he had the power to honor him regardless. You see why honor is such a powerful thing. It's not dependent on whether the other person earned it or not, or how they act towards you. That You have the power to treat them to their utmost highest. And David also knew that the way he treated Saul reflected how he valued the Lord himself. That what, I, that what I had just done, just done was an act against God himself. Because remember, at this, at, and during this time, kings were chosen by God. It was viewed that kings were chosen by God, that kings represented God himself. So the fact that David dishonored Saul meant that he dishonored the Lord. You see, the foundation or starting point of honor is our value for God. That's why in Ephesians 5.21, Apostle Paul says this, he says, Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. Out of reverence for Christ, meaning that when we submit ourselves to others and honor them, it's not dependent on the other person or whether they earned it or not, but it's dependent on whether we really value God. Because everyone is made in his image, and therefore everyone deserves honor. Do you know what happens when you don't have a value for God? you get someone like Friedrich Nietzsche. You guys know who Nietzsche is? Friedrich Nietzsche, right? He was a 19th century secular philosopher who believed in nihilism. And nihilism basically states that religion and God is dead. That's why we get that famous phrase, right? God is dead. He believed that love and compassion were just Christian sentimentalities, And the only thing that mattered in the world was power. Therefore, according to Nietzsche, the problem with the world wasn't evil, but it was weakness. And therefore, Nietzsche, he despised the weak, the disabled, the woman, elderly, the humble, the broken, the sick. And in his book, he writes that the, all these people are parasites to society. And some of you guys might be thinking, wow, that, that sounds awfully familiar. That sounds like Hitler. It does sound like Hitler because actually Hitler was influenced by Nietzsche. And he would make his troops read his book every time they went out into battle. So when we don't have a value for God, this is what it can lead to. So whenever we have an opportunity to treat other people, we can either choose to align with the kingdom of light and treat people with the utmost honor, or we can choose to align with the kingdom of darkness and treat people how Nietzsche you would. Perhaps that's why Jesus was asked, when Jesus was asked, what are the, what's the greatest commandment in the Bible? Jesus says, number one, love your God. And number two, Love one another, right? Number one, love your God and love one another. And that these two commandments summed up the law, the entire law. That our love and value for other people is dependent on how we first value Jesus. How we approach people shows and reflects how we value Jesus himself. That's why in Matthew 25, Jesus foretells how the final judgment will go, that he says that he will separate the unrighteous to the left, and he will separate the, right, the righteous on the right. And to the righteous, he'll tell them, you are blessed because you fed me when I was hungry. You gave me water when I was thirsty. You visited me when I was in sick and in prison. And the righteous will ask Jesus, Jesus, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry? Lord, when did we ever see you thirsty? Lord, when were you ever in prison or sick? And Jesus simply says, whatever you did to one of the least of my brothers, you did unto me. Whenever we value another person through our speech, our act, we're doing it unto Jesus himself. Amen. We're doing it to Jesus himself. And first Peter 2, Apostle Paul, he says, honor all people. Turn to the person next to you and say, honor all people. Honor, honor all people. Now, when I read all, I kind of get angry at Peter, and I'm like, darn it, Peter, why couldn't you write some people, you know, honor some people? Because that would make my life easier. That would give me the freedom to choose who I can honor and when I can honor. But Peter understood that showing honor isn't based on my own standard or the world's standard, but it's, it's based on God's standard and how he sees the best in other people. And think about this, if the best of who we're all called to be is ultimately being a reflection of Jesus, then honor is essentially treating another person as you would Jesus. You get that? That if the best of who we're all called to be is to be a reflection of Jesus, then essentially honor is treating another person as if Jesus was standing in the very same spot that you're in the person that you're talking to. And so you can only imagine how that would change the way we talk, the way we think, the way we act. Chris Balllatin, one of my favorite pastors, he says this: "Honor is finding golden people, But for some people, you just have to go through a lot more dirt until you find the gold." Yeah. Honor is finding the golden people. Sometimes you just have to go through a lot more dirt to find the golden sun. In 2014, 2015, um, after college, I decided to serve as a year missionary um, in Ivory Coast, Africa, at this Korean church. And two months in, there was a little bit of a complication, there was a little bit of a misunderstanding. And so what happened was that between the leaders of the church and myself and my friend who went with me, um, there was just, yeah, there was just a complication. Um, And one leader got really really upset at me Um, But the leaders talked amongst themselves and then you know, they figured things out and and they communicated to me But I had yet to meet um, The one leader who I really upset Um, But you know the other leaders told me everything's fine. Like don't worry like everything's worked out and so the next day um, I knew that this leader was coming into the church so um, you know, I was waiting for her to come so I can just, you know, inside to her so I can bow down to her and show, you know, sign of respect as you would in Korean culture. And, and so she walked in and I immediately, you know, I go, and I, and I and I bowed down. And she literally did not even look at me, and she just walked on. You know that moment when you try to give a high five to someone? And then like they don't see it and you're just kind of left there, and it's like, and you don't know what to do, it's awkward. It's kind of like humiliating. But this was like 10 times more humility and disrespectful. And so I thought, oh, maybe she just didn't see me. But then when she was leaving the church, I knew that she was leaving. So, you know, I went to go inside to her again. And no, I literally say, you know, I say you know, like, you know, goodbye. And she literally just did not even look me in the eye. And the funny thing is that she just started talking to the people who were around me. Yeah. Not even give me one glance. And then she just walked away. And that just really hurt. And then I was in you know, a question, I was like, God, like, how can, how can this person be a leader in the church? Like, how can, she, how can this person hold the title of leadership? God, how can I continue honoring this leader if I'm going to be constantly left to be out in the cold and the fool like that? But one of the things that Lord really spoke to me and brought up is 1 Peter 2. After Peter says, honor all people, he says this, servants, honor your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also the unjust. For this finds you favor. It's easy to honor people who are like you, but God says to honor all people, your co-workers, your boss, your family members, your children. your leaders. And this isn't to punish you or to simply make your life difficult, but it's so that God will promote you. Because if you know how to honor people, then God will bring you favor and honor you into his seat of honor. So for the following two, three months after that, you know, I just constantly had to die to myself. And like, whenever she would enter into the church, I would be like, oh, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. But... I knew that I had to honor her and that this was something that God wanted me to do. So, you know, I would use that to her. And some days, most days actually, um, you know, I would shoot this non-existently. And some days I got lucky, you know, she's said hi to me um, and I'll take it, I'll ta- and I would take that. But through this constant showing of honor, you know, things eventually started changing. And, and by the end of our trip, you know, we were reconciled and I could see the value, the gold in her why she's in the position of leadership that she is, why God called her to be who she is and where she is. And matter of fact, today, she's actually my financial support to pay for half of my seminary tuition. Honor can even change enemies and bring you favor. So how can we honor frustrating coworkers, annoying bosses? How can we treat them like Jesus? How can we honor the difficult person who rubs everyone off in the wrong way? We treat them like Jesus. How can we honor leaders in the church that we don't necessarily agree with? We treat them like Jesus. Leaders, how do you honor people in your church who are not like you, who are not obedient to whatever spiritual direction you're giving them? You treat them as honor, you treat them with honor. You find the best in that person. How can we honor our parents and family members, we treat them like Jesus. How can we honor those who betray and hurt us? We treat them like Jesus. You know, we know Judas to be a betrayer and a failure out of the 12 disciples. So much to the point that we kind of dehumanize them. You know, we forget that Judas actually had a real relationship with Jesus. That for three years, you know, he was handpicked by Jesus. That for three years, they walked together, they talked together, they served together. For three years, Judas saw the same miracles and received the same authority as all the other disciples to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to cast out demons. Never once did Jesus take Judas to the side and say, no, you can't be a part of that. Like, you can't you can't take part of that. You can't share our authority. But Jesus, in all those three years, he treated Judas with the same respect and same honor as he did with the other, 12, other, other 11 He treated them with honor for who they will become in the kingdom. And even at the very last moment, you know what the last thing that Jesus calls Judas? He calls him friend. And if there was ever a time for Jesus to treat Judas differently without honor, it's our passage here in John chapter 13, just a few hours away from the betrayal. Jesus could have excluded Judas from this last meal between friends. Yet Jesus still offered Judas the same bread and the same cup to drink as the others. Jesus honored his betrayer. You know, when you think about the Last Supper, you know, we get we think of like Michelangelo's painting, right? You guys know Michelangelo's painting of the Last Supper? But that's not how that's not how the actual Last Supper was. I have a picture up here. The Last Supper will come up. The Last Supper was actually eaten. On that kind of table, in that arrangement, And you would, you would eat lying down on your side, as I explained before. And Jesus, because he's the host of this meal, he would take his place right there in the middle as the host of the meal. And to the very right was John. And John was in the position of the best man. And he was in that position because if, you know, if they needed anything from the kitchen, the best man would go and just bring anything. That if there was someone who came into the house who just attack and have hostile intentions, it was the best man who would stand up and protect the host. But you notice that Judas is sitting on the left. And while the right side is the position of the best man, do you know what the left side is? The left side is the position of the most honored guest in the meal. The most honored guest. Some scholars say that Judas took the position for himself. But whether, whether Judas took the position for himself or whether Jesus gave it to him, in the end, Jesus let him take that spot because he wanted to show that this is how far you go with honor in the kingdom. That you would give the most honor spot to the man who will betray you after three years of pouring your life into him. And so it says, Jesus rose up. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, starting with the most honored guest of the meal, Judas himself. And with every rinse of water and with every part of the towel, Jesus looked at Judas and was saying, I still choose to honor you, even though I know you will soon betray me. You're still my friend. And I feel like that's what the Lord wants to do tonight. I feel like the Lord wants to let you know that despite your failures, despite your shame, despite your mistakes, that he wants to give you the seat of the most honored position because he values you. He values you. You are valuable and significant in his kingdom. You know, these past few months, I've been dealing with a lot of shame, right? And the opposite of honor is actually shame. In the Greek, it means to treat as ordinary, treat as common, to treat as insignificant and worthless. And I feel like tonight the Lord wants to break off shame in His name. Amen? Shame says that you're not blank enough. And just with that statement alone, right now, you guys can immediately fill in that statement. I'm not good enough. I'm not good looking enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not significant enough. But Jesus wants to let you know that He honors you as His child. That he honors you as a son and his daughter That you are valuable and you are significant Amen So at this time can we rise And yeah, we're going to go after shame And we're going we're gonna to go into ministry And we're, we're going to call out specific things feel like Jesus wants us to honor him first and foremost. To see him for who he truly is. To give him the worth, the respect, the honor that is due unto the king above all kings. In Matthew 10, Jesus visits his hometown of Nazareth again and he starts teaching and the people are amazed they're like, isn't this Jesus? Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this Mary's son? Don't we know his brothers? Don't we know his sister? And because of that, they took offense at him. Because because they just couldn't honor Jesus for who he was as a son of God. And Jesus says that because of their unbelief, because of their lack of honor, that he couldn't do any miracles in that place. And so, so he left. And so first and foremost, I feel like the Lord wants us to give Jesus all the honor and respect that he's due. Because I want to see miracles happen tonight, amen? Amen. I want to see us encounter Jesus in new, deeper ways, amen? I want us to see deliverance and healing that's in his kingdom. But before we can see those things, we have to first give the honor that is due to the King above all kings, the Lord above all lords. So at this time, let's just start lifting up our voices and giving him all the honor and respect. Let's not hold back. Let's not hold back because the, 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 this whole town, they, they just couldn't honor him for who he was. And, and they missed out on the miracles, the healings, the deliverances, the love that he wanted to bring. And I don't want us to miss out tonight. I don't want us to miss out tonight on what Jesus wants to do. So come on, let's just lift up our voices. Thank you for listening to PursuitCast. For more information on the ministry of Pursuit NYC, please visit us on the web at www.pursuitnyc.org. Revival or bust.